Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. Um, So if you all would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're still continuing our series through the book of Luke. Um, This morning we're going to be in verses uh, 46 through 50. Um, In this series, we've just gone verse by verse, little bit by little bit through the book of Luke. Um, And we've gotten to a point now where we're seeing the disciples where they've spent a a good bit of time with Jesus. And they they should have a pretty good understanding of who he is and and what he's doing and and what they should be doing in response. But it almost seems like Luke is using these, uh, these verses to show us the disciples' failures. Last week, we saw two of the disciples' failures, and this week, we're going to see more failures from the disciples. So the title of this sermon is The Disciples Fail Again and Again. Um, And the main idea, though, is that Jesus tries to grow his disciples. And if I had more room on this slide, I would have given a little uh, sub-main idea. So Jesus tries to grow his disciples, but we often don't want to. I'm going to say that again. Jesus tries to grow his disciples, but we often don't want to. So I have this broken into three uh, divisions, uh, arguing disciples, lowly greatness, and then let's change the subject. So verse 46 is arguing disciples. Verses 47 and 48 is lowly greatness. And 49 to 50 is let's change the subject. Um, I'll pray and then we'll get into this text. Heavenly Father, God, we, we come to you again this morning, thanking you, praising you, for the opportunity we have to gather together and to dig into your word. And as we open your word, as we listen to your word, Father, I pray that you will impress upon our hearts, that you will change our hearts to help us to grow more towards you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I know this says that we're going to start in verse 46, but I'm actually going to go back uh, and start at the end of 43. It says, while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, so remember Jesus had just cast the demon out of the boy. So while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so they could not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. I know this is not actually part of this week's sermon, but uh, we covered this Last sermon. It's been a couple of weeks, so I want us to be. I want to. I want this to. I want to use this as a bit of a reminder of what we've seen so far in this chapter in Luke. Um, I, uh, like I said, I know it's been a, a few weeks, so I want to review some of those main points. Think back to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? Jesus asked the disciples who the people say he is, and after going over the wrong answers, Jesus asked the disciples who they say he is. And Peter answered, God's Messiah. And Jesus responded by telling the disciples that he was going to suffer and die at the hands of the religious elites and then be resurrected on the third day. Then Jesus told his disciples that if they wanted to continue to follow him, they needed to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and then follow him. Not much of a warm and cozy sales pitch. Basically, if they wanted to continue to be Jesus' disciples, they would need to let go of their lofty ambitions and get ready to be tortured and possibly killed if they wanted to still follow him. Then there was the transfiguration. Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up the mountaintop, or up to the mountaintop to pray. 
The three disciples fell asleep, and Jesus was transformed into his heavenly glory. Moses and Elijah showed up, and they were talking to Jesus about his upcoming departure. The word that's used there in Greek is the same word that we get exodus from. So they're talking about Jesus' exodus. And when the disciples woke up, they realized they were witnessing something important, something great and wonderful was going on right in front of them, but they didn't know how to respond. And so Peter, never one to miss a moment to speak out of ignorance, he suggests that they build tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, implying that he wants them to stay there for a while. Instead, the presence of God the Father comes down as a cloud and envelops them. And then his voice says, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Then afterward, everything returned to normal. When they came down the mountain, they were confronted by a man whose only son was possessed by a demon that seemed bent on killing this boy. The father was desperate, but the disciples could not heal the son. Jesus rebukes his disciples, You unbelieving and perverse generation. Then he heals the boy. Basically, Jesus tells the disciples that they did not have enough faith to cast out this demon. Then he tells them that he is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. So this is Jesus' second warning of his upcoming death. But this time, he gives a new take on it. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. The disciples, obviously, understand understand the importance of Jesus' rebuke about their faithlessness and his subsequent Remarks about his betrayal, right? Especially after the transfiguration and the voice of God telling them to listen to Jesus. They understood everything that was going on, right? They want to know how to grow in their faith and prevent this betrayal, right? Well, getting into today's verse, verse 46 says, An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. In the last sermon, we looked at a couple of the failures from the disciples. And I said that we were going to get to see more in the coming weeks. This is the first of their, of their failures this week. Instead of listening to Jesus and trying to learn from him, instead of trying to strengthen their faith or, or strengthen their bond or, or sniff out the betrayer, they start arguing amongst themselves. Maybe, maybe, maybe the argument starts off with the right mentality. Right? Jesus says he's about to be betrayed, and they start trying to figure out who it is. Peter says, well, it's not me because, well, I'm Peter, right? The leader of the disciples. It couldn't be me. And John says, well, it's not me because I have the closest relationship with Jesus, right? We, 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 we call me the one whom Jesus loved. This obviously turns into, or this would eventually turn into who's the greatest disciple, right? Well, maybe that's what happened, but they still missed the point. Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith. So instead of listening to him and trying to grow in their faith, they start trying to show how they have enough faith. God told them to listen to Jesus, but instead they're puffing up their own pride. Back in verse 23, Jesus told them to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. Instead of denying themselves, they're peacocking around. Instead of actually hearing what Jesus is telling them, they're tearing each other down and arguing amongst themselves. It's almost as if they've ignored everything they have learned so far in this chapter. And it's easy for us to point our fingers at the disciples and point out all the wrong things they're doing. It's easy for us to to point out how ridiculous that they sound in these verses. But how many times do we do this exact same thing in our own lives? How many times do we hear these same stories in modern life? 
Right? The football team that has the skills and talent needed to win, but once the other team starts scoring points, they turn against each other and they tear each other down instead of working as a team to build each other up. The workplace culture that when something goes wrong and the, the boss is looking for the person who's responsible, the, the coworkers throw each other under the bus and blame each other and are more focused on not looking bad than actually doing a good job. I see it all the time in my classes. If I have to redirect a student's behavior, they're quick to respond with what somebody else is doing wrong instead of owning up to the responsibility for their own behavior. And even in the church, though we might not be quite as obvious about it, we've learned to be a little bit more sneaky about it, we are secretly comparing our lives and our sins to others so that we don't feel quite as bad about our own sins. Right? I'm not nearly as sinful as Laurie, so I don't have anything to worry about. Or, and don't even get me started on John, right? I'm nowhere near that bad. I'm actually, I'm basically a saint compared to those two, right? I'm, I'm pretty great. God, so you don't need to worry about me. You really need to focus on fixing them. No. Hopefully we wouldn't actually say that out loud. But unfortunately, I think if we could be honest with ourselves we would find some of those conversations happening in our hearts. In all reality, if that is our mindset, then we're just as bad as the disciples in this story. Like I said, we wouldn't actually say something like that out loud, but subconsciously, I think many Christians believe these types of lies. So how does Jesus respond to his disciples acting like this? But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, wait, I need to take a second and talk about that. So quick pause. Jesus doesn't need to hear the disciples arguing. He knows their thoughts. He knows their hearts. There's no way to hide our inner thoughts from God. There's no way for us to hide our thoughts from the God of the universe. He created us and he knows us best. But he also knows those thoughts that we wish we never had. He knows the thoughts that that we are too ashamed to admit to anyone else. Jesus knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. In this case, Jesus knew the disciples' inner thoughts. Even those thoughts that they didn't say in the course of this argument. He he knew those inner thoughts that motivated the the disciples to say what they said in the argument. His response, therefore, is even more attuned to the disciples' needs than someone who was just listening to the whole argument but who could not get inside their heads. Jesus knows exactly the correct response to happen, or what they need. So Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. In response to the disciples' prideful and arrogant argument, Jesus brings a little child as the object of his next lesson. In the first century, or in first century Jerusalem, or the culture of the Roman Empire, children were regarded as insignificant and unimportant. So in the context of of these disciples' argument, Jesus chooses someone who society would consider to be the least important person that you could imagine. A small child. Then he goes on, the next level, and basically puts himself on the same level as this child. Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator of all reality, Jesus, the author of truth, places himself on the same level as this child, who society would see as unimportant, the lowliest 
member of society. Jesus identifies with him. Whoever welcomes, uh, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. If you remember, way back in December, almost a year ago now, I said one of the recurring themes in the book of Luke is the exaltation of the humble. We saw this with Mary and Elizabeth and the shepherds in the Christmas story. And now while the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest among them, Jesus exalts a child. Jesus basically says that the way to greatness in his kingdom is to humble yourself. Become like this child. Greatness in the kingdom of God is serving the lowly. Instead of puffing up with pride, Jesus' disciples are to demonstrate charity and care for those whom society would deem as unworthy. Greatness in the kingdom of God is opposite of what would be greatness in our society. Greatness in the kingdom of God is opposite of what would be considered great in our secular culture. Greatness in the kingdom of God is unexpected. It's unexpected charity. It's unexpected humility. But I've said before that we can't be more humble by trying to be more humble. You can't become more humble through your own efforts. The only way to grow in humility is to focus on the one greater than you. We grow in humility by focusing on God's greatness. When we focus on God's greatness, we are forced to humility because we see his greatness contrasted with our sinfulness. We see his love contrasted with our sinful heart. We see his justice and his mercy contrasted with our desire for vengeance. We talked about that a good bit in Sunday school this morning. We see God's perfection contrasted with our sinfulness. That's how we grow in humility. Focus on him. You can't focus on yourself to be more humble because then you're only going to be more prideful. We focus on him. And just in case you were thinking maybe the disciples understood what Jesus was saying and, and how they were to go about changing their ways, we get to see the disciples' second failure this week. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow you. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. John's response to Jesus basically says, see, here's this other guy, right? Who, who's not as good as, uh, as us because, you know, we're, we're so awesome. And he's trying to do your work, but since he's not as good as us, we told him to stop. I realize that's not exactly what John said, but considering how this conversation is going, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to think that John's actual motive, that, to, to think that this is John's actual motivation for bringing up this guy. Right? Jesus is rebuking the disciples for their pride and for their arrogance. They're arguing about who is the greatest among them, and Jesus brings in a child to show that this is how they're supposed to act. Instead, John changes the subject, and he says, look at this other guy. He's trying to do all this stuff, but he's not as good as us, so we told him to stop. Jesus tells the disciples they need more faith. So they argue about which one's the greatest. Jesus tells them to be more humble, and they say, well, at least we're not that guy. You know, that, that guy who's doing your work, but he's not part of our group. The disciples should be listening to Jesus, hearing his wisdom, and learning from him, and allowing his teaching to transform their hearts. Instead, they know that Jesus is trying to, or trying to teach them something, 
but it's easier to point their finger at someone else. It's easier to point their finger at someone else's failures than it is for them to learn and to grow. Jesus wants to grow his disciples, not just the 12 that we read about in the Gospels, but all of his disciples. Jesus wants to grow his disciples. Jesus wants to grow you. But growth requires change. And change isn't easy. Change isn't fun. Growth requires change. See, this ties in with our second indicator of a disciple. Now remember our definition of a disciple and our indicators of a disciple come from Matthew 4, 19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Those three indicators are knowing, being, and doing. The being that I'm focusing on right now is that where Jesus says, I will make. Right? The being indicator is that Jesus is constantly transforming the disciple. We are constantly being changed to be more like him. We are constantly being transformed in our heart to reflect God's glory more to those around us. We're constantly being transformed through surrender to him so that we can reflect his glory more, so that he can live in our lives more. Unfortunately, all too often, when Jesus is trying to grow us, we'd rather change the subject and point to someone else. Maybe even try to point to something that they're doing wrong. Earlier, when I joked about justifying myself by pointing out Lori or John's sins, unfortunately, all too often, we make those comparisons when Jesus is trying to grow us. Instead of doing the hard work of submitting to Jesus' wisdom and surrendering to the Holy Spirit we allow, and allowing Him to grow us, we fight against Him and we change the subject, just like John did here. Jesus says, you don't have enough faith. So they argue amongst themselves, who's the greatest? Jesus says, be like this child. And John says, well, at least we're not that guy. Too often, Jesus wants to grow his disciples, but we don't want to. Jesus wants to grow us to be more like him. And that can only happen through surrender. Since I've already started talking about our definition of a disciple, right? we're kind of getting to our application point here. Um, so our application always comes from our definition of a disciple and those three indicators. So our no application is to know that Jesus tries to grow his disciples. Our culture tells us that you're perfect just the way you are. That's a lie. None of us are perfect. We are all sinners. And because of this, we all deserve death and eternal punishment. If you think that you don't deserve death and eternal punishment, you're wrong. We all do. We sinned against God. We went against his perfect will for us. We rejected him. And since God is a perfect and holy judge, all sin must be punished. The penalty for sin is death and eternal separation from God. But God loves us so much that he made a way for us to be forgiven. John 3.16 tells us, For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, so everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When we believe in him, he takes our punishment. When we believe in him, he reconciles the relationship that we broke. Through continual surrender to him, we are made more into the person we were created to be before Jesus corrupted us, or before sin corrupted us, sorry. Before sin corrupted us. Jesus wants us to grow in our Christ-likeness. This is called sanctification, and it can only happen through surrender to him. Often, it's not fun because growth means change, and change is hard. But the result is worth it. We are created to reflect God's glory back to him. And the better we do this, 
the more heavenly peace and joy our life will have. Our B application is to be willing to grow. All too often, we are unwilling to change. It's hard, yes, but it is worth it. Sometimes we're too attached to our sin to be willing to give it up. In that case, I would say that that sin has become an idol for you because you value that sin more than you value God and His will in your life. How do you fix that? If you recognize that this sin has become an idol for you, how do you fix that? Well, most of the time, you can't fix it by loving that idol less. Instead, we can only fix it by growing in our love for God. Previously, we read through God's at war, which confronted many of the idols we face in our culture. Many times, those idols are not inherently sinful or wrong. Often, the idols in our lives were originally good gifts from God, but instead we've taken them and our love for them misplaces them and they become an idol. The best way to combat, com, uh, the, mutton, mm-hmm. the best way to combat that idolatry is to focus on God's goodness and His beauty. Even still, sometimes, we know that we should be willing to grow, but we still don't want to. In that case, pray for God to give you the desire to grow and the ability to surrender. That's our due application, is to surrender to Jesus. This growth cannot happen through our own power or through our own effort. As we, uh, we cannot grow closer to God by our own means. We can only do this by surrendering to Jesus. A common thing that you'll hear if you hang around Christians long enough is this idea of becoming more like Jesus or acting more like Jesus. In all reality, we can't do that. We can't become more like Jesus. We can't act like Jesus. He is perfect and we are sinful. The way that we become more like Jesus is to surrender to him and allow him to live through us. Surrender to him first for salvation, then surrender to him continually for sanctification. I cannot grow to act more like Jesus. I can only surrender more of myself to him and let him live through me. That's that growth. We grow through surrender. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth that's in your word. We thank you for the fact that that you came to die for us, to save us from our sins. Lord, we praise you that you want to grow us to be more like you. Lord, I pray that you will help us to surrender more and more to you each and every day so that you can live through us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our point of response. You can respond right where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit victorybaptisthopemills.com or facebook.com slash vbchopemills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.